0: Now, we are in a series called Outsiders, and my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and man, happy Thanksgiving, Merry Christmas. Uh, It's that time of year again, and I love it. I'm so excited. And uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. If you're a guest of ours this morning, if it's your first time coming to ACF Church, uh, welcome. Uh, Thank you for being with us this morning. We're honored to have you here. For those of you guys watching online, uh, we're glad you're joining us this morning. So many of our deployed soldiers are watching right now. Uh, It's fun to hear them talk about how they're sitting at home, or sitting in Afghanistan, why they're sitting at home watching uh, our sermon together. Um, But you are here, and it is our last Sunday of Outsiders. So for the last several weeks, we've been talking about um, in Scripture where we look at people being brought from the outside in, in in very different circumstances and for various reasons. And so we're going to continue this conversation today about outsiders. But before we jump into it, I want us to understand something together in this room. Um, I understand that this is a room full of people, and, and at 9 a.m. and Wednesday, room full of people, and all of us are coming with different experiences to get here this morning. Uh, there's, there's people in this room uh, where maybe you were born into a Christian family, or you were raised in the church, and you have an awesome walk with God, and, and yeah, you're not perfect, but you're, you're pursuing God and growing in that, and, and that's awesome. And there's people in this room that maybe you were born in a Christian family, grew up going to church, and your experience has not been awesome. Uh, Maybe you've been hurt by people who went to church, or misunderstood things, or you would say what we call de-church, where you classify yourself at. Um, There's people in this room where you're not a churchgoer, you never consider yourself a churchgoer, You, you weren't raised going to church, maybe you go on the holidays, Christmas time, Easter time, with the family and do that, and for some reason, somehow you ended up here at ACF Church this morning. There's a variety of people in this room. But there's one thing I want us to understand. So often we, we can look at these things and, and think that we're so different from each other. So different. How can we possibly relate uh, to each other? And how can I possibly teach and preach to a room full of people who are coming from all these different areas? But I want us to understand that, that we're not that far off from each other. That, that we are all in this place called humanity and how we've all felt like the outsider before, and we've all even been the outsider before. I mean, Scripture is really clear that every one of us has been an outsider. In fact, what we see in Scripture early on in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, we read that God creates the universe, and He creates this earth, and He does it for us, and He creates this experience for us where where humanity has a perfect relationship with God. A perfect relationship with each other. That God creates man, he creates woman, and and man and woman and God, they have this perfect relationship. And God says, this is good. This is what I intended. And and we have this open communication with God, we are part of his family, And, and it's this amazing situation. But then comes a moment in time where man decides to do his own thing instead of obeying God. And when this happens, man enters sin into the situation. He enters sin into his life, and he actually brings sin into creation itself. And by doing so, brings us as insiders to outsiders. That there is now a separation. There is no longer perfect union. There is no longer perfect communion happening between man and God. It's broken. Man chose his own ways over God's ways. But before, or as I should say, God is separating man and, and, and pushing him to the outside because of his choices and because of sin. God says, look, I, I love you so much that, I'm, that you're not going to stay here. That there's going to come a day when, when somebody is going to come... And they're going to restore all of this back into its perfect order. They're going to restore everything. They're going to fulfill every law that's ever been set. They're, they're going to do the work that you couldn't do. And that day will come. And that was good news then and is good news now. But, but, but what they want us to understand is we've all been the outsider. That everyone's been born an outsider. In, 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 in Romans, it says that through one man, sin entered the world. Through sin, death to, to everybody. And so we all have come at least from the same place. And some of us might still be in the same place. But, but I think we can all relate. As we talk about outsiders, I think we can all relate going, yeah, I've felt like an outsider before. Like, Who could say you felt like an outsider at some point in your life? Like, yeah, maybe I started a new job and like everyone in that office had a working relationship. I was the outsider, had to figure out my place there. Maybe you moved a lot of military in the room and you go from place to place to place to place. And each time you start over again kind of as this outsider trying to work your way in. I remember in my life, uh, I was born in the Seattle area, Go Hawks, and um, born and raised there until I was about 10 years old, and when I was 10, my parents decided to move to eastern Washington. Uh, My dad got a job over there, And, and eastern Washington, if you're not familiar with Washington, is very different than western Washington. It does not rain all the time, okay? Like, the entire state does not rain all the time. That's Seattle. Like, where I moved, it was very different. I moved to this really tiny, small community called Kashmir. Now, Kashmir had about 2,000 people in the entire town, right? It was about the size of Chugiak High School, my entire town, right? And, And especially back then, people just didn't move to Kashmir, and people didn't move out of Kashmir. So when I started fourth grade, every kid there, they all knew each other. Right? There was about 80 kids in my whole class, so they all knew each other. Their families all knew each other. Their parents all knew each other. Their siblings all knew each other. All the teachers all knew them because they all had their older brothers and sisters. And so I was definitely an outsider coming in. Now, I remember my first day going to Cashmere Elementary School, Vale Elementary, go Eagles, right? Um, I remember my first day was right around Thanksgiving, okay? And so uh, it had snowed. And coming from Seattle, we, we didn't get a lot of snow, so I didn't have really snow gear yet. And so my mom's like, well, you can't go to school without boots, but I didn't have any snow boots. So my mom had a br- great idea. You can just wear my boots. Okay? Now, my mom didn't have snow boots either. She was talking about her nice designer leather boots. They are kind of scrunchy right here, pointed toe. I was wearing my mom's like dress boots to school on my first day in fourth grade, it was horrible, right? Like, it was, I vividly remember getting, like, made fun of for my boots. I was making fun of myself for my boots, right? Like, this was not a great first impression as a 10-year-old going into fourth grade wearing my mom's, you know, fancy boots because it snowed. Like, they didn't help. But I remember feeling so much like an outsider, and and it took me a long time in this small community to not feel like an outsider anymore. I mean, it took years, and so I get this being an outsider and feeling like an outsider. So today, we're going to talk about a story in the Bible where somebody was definitely an outsider. Now, it's a little bit of an obscure story. You may or may have not heard it before. Has anybody ever heard of a character in the Bible named Mephibosheth? Anybody ever heard of Mephibosheth? A few of you guys have, a few people. So there's a lot of backstory with Mephibosheth. We find the story of Mephibosheth in in the second book of Samuel. And so what I want us to do, though, because I don't want to assume at all that anybody, not everybody in this room knows these stories and where they come from. So we're going to do some backstory this morning to get to where we're going. So I made a little uh, chart here to help us understand because the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, it gets a little, I don't know, general hospital-esque, right? Days of our lives-ish. It's a little soap opera-y in these books. It's a little crazy. And so to help us not get lost, if you haven't heard these stories, we're going to start with King Saul. Now, Saul was the first king of Israel. Israel said, We want a king. And God said, Okay. And he charged Samuel, who's one of his prophets, to go anoint Saul king of Israel. So Saul becomes king of Israel. And at first, it's awesome, right? He's profitable. um, He's building up this nation. They're becoming stronger in their military might and they're defeating nations. They're going to war and everything's going well. Until Saul decides he wants to do it his way instead of God's way. God tells him not to do something specifically and Saul decides to do it. And when this happens, God gets really angry at Saul and he decides to remove his Holy Spirit from Saul and, and to pull off the, uh, his, his anointing and to make it so he would eventually no longer be king of Israel and that, that royalty would not continue in his lineage. Like this is a big deal that Saul disobeys God. And so, God says, send Samuel to tell Saul this. He says, Samuel comes to Saul, and he says, look, you've disobeyed God. He's removing his spirit from you, and your lineage is not going to continue with the throne. And so, Samuel then is like, okay, God, he's praying. And he's like, who's going to be the next king of Israel? Like, who's going to be next? You removed that from Saul, so now what? And so, God says, look, there's this guy named Jesse. He's got a bunch of sons. One of those sons is going to be the next king of Israel. So Samuel says, okay. He goes to Jesse's house, knocks on the door. Jesse answers the door. Hey, Jesse, so God told me one of your sons is going to be the next king. That's a good day, right? As a father, like, awesome. So Samuel says, get all your sons. So Jesse goes and he calls all the sons. They all come. And Samuel goes, starts with the oldest. Not you, right? Not you. Can you imagine being one of those sons? Like, it's going to be me no? Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm better than him and him, right? Not you, not you, not you, goes down the line. And Samuel ends, and he's like, okay, this is kind of embarrassing, but do you happen to have any more sons? Like, did you forget about one? Well, yes, he did forget about one, right? Like, that just speaks to their relationship. Um, There's the youngest one, but he's not really that important. He's out watching the sheep. Right? And so Samuel's like, go get him. So he goes and gets this boy, his name's David, brings him before Samuel, and God says, yes, this is the one. So Samuel anoints David as king. Can I, can I hear it from my youngest in the family? Come on, we are the best, all right? <laughs> like David becomes, gets anointed king. He doesn't become king right then, he becomes anointed king of Israel. And then what does he do? He goes back out and watches the sheep. Okay, why this is all happening... Not only does God remove his spirit from Saul, but Scripture tells us that he sends a tormenting spirit onto Saul for disobeying him. So Saul's like being tormented. We don't exactly know what that means and what that looks like. But he goes and he talks to his, his wise men, his, his royal council. And he's like, you guys, I'm being tormented day and night. What are we going to do? I, I need relief from this. What, what do I do? And, and they're like, well, I don't, music? Maybe, maybe music would help. And so Saul's like, okay, go find me the best harp player in the land. So they, they start scouring the land, and lo and behold, who's the best harp player? It's, it's David, right? This young boy named David, apparently he's a prodigy harp player, right? And so they bring him to the palace, and he starts playing for King Saul. And as he does it, it says that this, this tormenting spirit leaves Saul, So now David has this new job, and he starts living in the palace, and he just follows Saul around playing his harp for him. So he grows up in the palace. Well, Saul had a son whose name was Jonathan. Now at this moment in time, Jonathan is the son of Saul. He's the prince of Israel, and he's the future king. He's an heir to the throne right now. But as Jonathan and David are about the same age, David starts growing up in the palace, and so Jonathan and David become best friends with each other. In fact, Scripture tells us they become more than best friends, that they become like brothers with each other. They love each other. And so they start growing up together. David's in the palace, Jonathan's in the palace. Well, Saul gets called off to war. He goes to war. You might have heard this story. He goes to battle the Philistines. They have the, the Philistines have this guy, his name's Goliath. And so David, through circumstance of events, ends up on the battlefield. He's not supposed to be on the battlefield, but he ends up on the battlefield. Nobody wants to fight Goliath. David says, I'll fight Goliath. And through much conversation and, and more circumstances of events, you should read about it. It's awesome. It's in Samuel. He ends up slaying and killing Goliath. Okay? And then everybody goes home. Everybody goes back to normal life. Saul goes back to the temple. David follows Saul to the temple to play his harp for him. Jonathan goes back. But then something happens. David becomes a rock star. He becomes a rock star in the kingdom. And they start writing songs about him. These songs are on the radio. They're on every, they're on every TV commercial. right? The, every ESPN like snippet has this song playing in it. You can't get away from it. It's everywhere. And the lyrics to this song go like this. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul hates this song. And and it starts just working on him. And and he starts building this bitterness and hatred for David. And, And so much so, it comes to the point where Saul wants to kill David. And at first, he does a good job hiding it, right? Like, he's like, maybe, I don't know, hopefully this wasn't you like this last Thursday, but the family member walks in like, I'm so glad you're here, yes, I'm going to kill you. Like, just give me a reason, right? Like that was Saul, just wanting to kill David, but at first kind of stuffing it down, but he, he can't hide it anymore. And so we get to this point where Jonathan finds out about Saul's attempt to kill his best friend. So he calls to David, and they meet, and Jonathan warns David about Saul's attempt to kill him. Now, at some point, Jonathan realizes that David's going to be the next king of Israel and not him, right? And this is how Jonathan handles it. Jonathan and David come together, and Jonathan says, Look, David, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Please, please show kindness to my family. When you become king, please show kindness to my family. And David says, as "Assuredly, as the Lord lives, Jonathan, I will show kindness to your family. And they part their separate ways. Years go by. And David, you read these stories, he spends years hiding and running from Saul. Saul chasing him down, trying to kill him. And during this time, Jonathan has a son, Mephibosheth, who is the grandson to Saul. And he is a future heir at this point to the throne still. So this is where our story starts. Okay, We got all caught up to this point. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever had a bad day? Who's had a bad day before? Come on. If you're not raising your hand, get out. <laughs> I don't want to be around you. Your every day is an awesome day, right? We've all had bad days. I want to talk about a particularly bad day today, or a bad day of, of this boy named Mephibosheth. So, several years have gone by, and it comes a point where Jonathan and Saul go to war. There are several kings versus several kings in this war. It, Mephibosheth, he's in the palace, hanging out, he's five years old, he's probably watching Disney Junior, hanging out, he's like my kids, and all of a sudden he sees something, all of a sudden he notices around him, everybody is frantically running around, everybody is in a panic and there's fear, and he doesn't know what's happening, and then somebody comes to him, or he overhears a conversation that his dad and his grandfather have been killed in this battle. They both die. He loses them both in one moment, his dad and his grandfather. So as he probably begins to mourn and and just cope and understand in a five-year-old way the fact that his dad is dead and and, and his grandfather's dead, all of a sudden he hears these whispers and he hears people talking, David, David's on his way to the palace. David is on his way to the palace. And for a five-year-old, he might have started to get excited about that. I'm sure that Jonathan, his dad, has told him about his best friend, about his brother, about this this man that he loved, and they loved each other, and they had this brotherly bond with each other, and and one day I can't wait for you to meet Uncle David, right? Like, David's going to take care of you someday, so Mephibosheth's probably thinking, oh, David's coming. But everyone's in this panic. They're not excited about David coming. You see, in the traditions of the monarchs of the time, if a new king took over the throne, and they were outside of the bloodline of the reigning king, they would come in and kill every blood member of that king. Every single one. They would kill people who were loyal to that king because they couldn't risk a four-year-old growing up 20 years later and then coming back to challenge the reigning king for his, his, his bloodline to try to take over the throne. And so the monarchs would just come through and wipe them all out. So everybody assumes that David's coming to kill them all. And what we read happens next is that Mephibosheth's nurse grabs him and she runs out of the palace holding him. Now this kid's having a bad day, wouldn't you say? Grandfather dead, dad dead. His dad's best friend is on his way to the palace to kill him? What? Now as his nurse is running, she drops him and breaks both of his legs. This day just keeps getting better. She breaks both of his legs, but there's no time to see a physician. There's no time to get help. We can only escape with the clothes on her back. So she just picks him up, and they run on into the night. And the last thing we read about Mephibosheth is that he became crippled because of being dropped and breaking both of his legs. So now what we're going to do is I want to read from you 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to fast forward 20 years-ish, about 20 years, people guess. And this is what happens now. So David, it says, and and, and David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So for some reason, we don't really know why, but for some reason, about 20 years later, all of a sudden, David's like, hey, I made this promise with Jonathan. Is there anybody left in his family? We don't know why. Maybe it was like the 20-year anniversary of losing his friend Jonathan. Maybe something else was going on. But all of a sudden, David gets reminded of this. And he asked if there's anyone left in the house of Jonathan that he may show kindness. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul who was named Ziba. And he called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is a cripple in his feet. The king said to him, "Where is he?" And Ziba said, "He is in the house of Makar, the son of Ammil, at Lodabar." Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Ammil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, "Mephibosheth." And he answered, "Behold, I am your servant." And David said to him, "Do not fear." For I will show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, all that belongs to Saul and all of his house I have now given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring him the produce that your master may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commanded of his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. This is a really interesting story of an outsider being brought in. But what I want to do this morning is I want us to really focus in and, and look at this life of Mephibosheth. Because I think if we look close enough at it, we're going to find that many of us, if not all of us, can relate to Mephibosheth. That Mephibosheth is actually a story of us. The end. So what I want us to do is, is, is look, take a look at these 20 years where we kind of lose sight of Mephibosheth and what happened to him. But I think there's enough in this story where we can read into where Mephibosheth was at the time when David found him. And so the first thing that I think we can see is that Mephibosheth lived in shame. Mephibosheth was living in shame when David found him. And read the scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 4, it says that Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. The one who had nursed him picked him up and fled. But as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. You see, back then, to have any sort of physical ailments, any sort of physical handicap, was to be shame on you and your family. They just they saw that as, as a shameful thing if you were physically handicapped. In fact, we see this even all the way up into the New Testament. Right? There's a story when the disciples are walking down the road with Jesus and they see a blind man. And they're like, yeah, who sinned, Him or his parents? Like, whose shame caused him to be blind? And Jesus is like, um, neither? Right? Like, you, got, you guys got it all wrong. But for their culture, to be crippled was to be shameful. In fact, you, you kind of hear it in Ziba, right? Listen to this. So the king asks, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show kindness, the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, "There's Jonathan's son who was injured in both his feet." In other words, Ziba's like, "Yeah, there's Jonathan's son, but you don't want to show kindness to him. He, he's a cripple. He was injured in both his feet. He's not worthy to be, to be treated kindly. Like who does that, right? Who introduces someone by their, by their handicapped? It's like, what'd you, would you guys do for Thanksgiving? Oh, we went to my buddy's, Bob's house. He's in a wheelchair, right? Like." <laughs> We don't do that, but that's what Ziba does because it was shameful for Mephibosheth to have this ailment. And in fact, what we really see here is Mephibosheth not only had the ailment, but he took on the identity of shame itself in his life. You see, Mephibosheth was not his given name. Mephibosheth is not the name that Jonathan named him. When you read through the lineage of of the kings of Israel... Mephibosheth is not mentioned, but we do see a son of Jonathan who is named, and his name is uh, his name is Jez- uh, I'm sorry, Maribel. His name is Maribel. The name that Mephibosheth was given was Meribbel, and what that translates to is an opponent of Baal. This was a warrior's name. You see, Baal was the god of all the surrounding nations of Israel, the nations that they were at war with, the nations that they were told to go and conquer. You see, when when Israel went up to to battle another nation, it wasn't flag versus flag. It wasn't people group versus people group. It was gods versus gods. It was the God of Israel versus the God of whatever nation that they were going against. And and when we read the story of David and Goliath, what ticked David off so much was that this Philistine wasn't mocking their people. It was that this Philistine was mocking their God. And so Meribel, the opponent of Baal, was going to be this name where he was going to grow up and be an opponent against the gods of these other nations. And he was going to bring the name of the God of Israel to battle. And he was going to be this warrior. It was this awesome name. But then his name gets changed to Mephibosheth, which translated means, from the mouth of shame. His name literally gets translated to shameful. We don't see exactly where this happens. It doesn't tell us. There might be a glimpse of it in this, what I just read. When it says, The one who had nursed him picked him up and fled. As she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. It's the first time we actually see him called Mephibosheth. M- maybe, just maybe, it was after he became lame that everyone started calling him Mephibosheth. That everybody started calling him shameful. And so Mephibosheth grows up with this name of shame on his life. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can connect to that just this, this very morning. That maybe you've taken on the identity of your shame. That that's what you know yourself by is your screw ups, your mistakes. And that's how you're going through life is identifying with your shame. And that is who you've become. The next thing is we see that Mephibosheth lived in obscurity. 2 Samuel 9, the king said to him, Where is he? In Zeba said to the king, he's in the house of Makar, the son of mill at Debar, Not Eastabar, but Lodabar. You see, Lodabar translate, it, it is called no bread. That's what it translates to. No bread. In other words, what they would call that place is the land of nothing. The land of nothing. There's no reason to go there. You can't even grow bread there. Nothing. So Mephibosheth disappears into the night into obscurity. He disappears and he's forgotten. He, he takes on this shame and then he goes and lives in nothing. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Have you ever felt like you've been in nothingness? Have you ever felt like you've been in a place where you're just forgotten? Where you're living in obscurity and you're thinking, man, no one even knows I'm here. No one sees me. I'm surrounded by people, yet I'm so alone. We can get to those places so easily. And this is where Mephibosheth lived for the majority of his life. He was raised in this place of obscurity. Maybe you can connect to that and relate to that this morning. You're feeling alone. Especially up here in Alaska at this time of year. It's getting dark. It's getting cold. Many of us have family down in the lower 48, not up here. And we're just like, man, there's all these people sitting around me, but does anybody actually see me? Or am I just alone? The third thing we see is that Mephibosheth lived in fear. He spent the better part of his life living in fear, afraid that David might actually discover where he is and come and kill him. You see, in what I realize is so often, we live in fear ourselves, and it keeps us in obscurity. It keeps us in our shame. What we read right here in 2 Samuel 9, and David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I? He'd been living in in obscurity and had been living in shame and fear for so long that the only thing he valued of himself was about equal with a dead dog, not even a living dog. But a dead dog, that was the value that Mephibosheth saw himself. And so often, man, we can relate to that, can't we? Man, I, I don't know if I'm worth anything. Right? I, I don't know if, if it's worth for me to do anything. Like our fear, we're so afraid of, of maybe our shame. We're so afraid of whatever it might be. But so often what I've realized is our fear keeps us right where we're at. At any point, Mephibosheth could have like, sent a messenger to the palace and been like, hey, so I'm here, I'm in obscurity, and I'm crippled in both feet, so you got nothing to be afraid of. There's no way I'm going to try to take over the throne. Can I at least you know, come and live in the capital city? Right? He could have sent word to David. Remember my dad, Jonathan, your, your buddy? No, he didn't. He just continued to hide because the fear kept him right where he was at. And so often, and and here's the thing, so often our fear keeps us right where we're at, and, and his fear wasn't even real. David wasn't looking for him to kill him. And so often the very thing we're afraid of is a lie that we've bought into, a lie that tells us that we're worthless, a lie that tells us that no one loves us, a lie that tells us that God could never forgive us. And we buy into this lie, and so we just stay right where we're at. But then something happens in this story. And I love this story because really what this story is is, is a foreshadowing of what's to come. So often in the Old Testament, God uses these stories as, as, as microcosms or like these examples of this is what is to come. And this thing steps in called grace. This thing steps in and David demonstrates something that we don't see a ton of in the Old Testament. He demonstrates this thing called grace. And he shows Mephibosheth grace. And grace is the very thing that God has shown us. So what happens when grace steps into this story? The first thing we see is this. Grace seeks us right where we are. Grace seeks us right where we are. Mephibosheth was not even looking for King David, right? Mephibosheth wasn't out on this journey to find the king, to try to get everything taken care of, to try to get everything fixed, to try not to die, but to not have to live in obscurity. No, he was just doing the opposite. He was hiding from the king. And yet, grace went and found Mephibosheth. He didn't go and look for it. It went to look for him. David asks, where is he? And Ziba says, he's in low Debar. You see... Grace, the thing that's amazing about grace is it does not require us to go seek out the king. It does not require us to get ourselves out of where we're at, to get ourselves before the king. No, it comes and searches for us. You see, Mephibosheth knew that by his very lineage, he could be killed by King David. Just because he was born of Jonathan, who was born of Saul, he could be killed by David. He knew that. He understood that just by his very lineage. And the same is true for us just because of our very lineage, because we are all sons of Adam and daughters of Adam. And we all come from this broken relationship. Scripture says in Romans, it says, through one man sin entered the world and through sin, death to everybody. That through our very lineage that we deserve death. Just like Mephibosheth. And yet, Grace comes and finds us right where we are, in our obscurity, in our shame. It doesn't tell us to shake that off and then go look for the king. It comes and finds us. The second thing we see is that grace brings us to the king. Grace brings us to the king. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of Of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the lands of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. You see, way back in 1 Samuel, probably at least 40 years prior to this, Jonathan and David make a covenant with each other. They make a covenant with each other, and David promises Jonathan that he will always take care of his family. And Mephibosheth had nothing to do with that covenant, he wasn't even born yet. Right this covenant had nothing to do with Mephibosheth and yet everything to do with him Mephibosheth could only do one thing and that was receive the benefits of this covenant He could only receive it he had nothing to do with it being made he had no input like hey guys maybe we could decide to do this but he wasn't even there He became a beneficiary of a covenant that Jonathan and David made much like us You see God the Father made a covenant with the son that was going to be empowered through the Holy Spirit, that one day, because of our brokenness, and because of our sin, and because of our shame, that, that, that this, this had to be taken care of. It, we couldn't stay in this state forever. God didn't, wouldn't allow it. And so he sends his son to pay the penalty, to pay the price that we should have paid. Right? Because of our lineage, we deserved death, but Jesus took it all on himself. And this covenant was made, and we had nothing to do with it. We didn't, we didn't help come up with the idea for it. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't our thought. It wasn't, we weren't even there when it was made. And yet all that we get to do is be beneficiaries of this covenant. We get to receive the grace from the covenant that was made between the Father and the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's all we can do is receive it. You can't earn it. Mephibosheth could not earn this covenant, right? He couldn't show up to David and go, look, I've grown up. I'm stronger now, I'm older now, I can be one of your warriors, send me to fight. He was was crippled, there's no way he could do that. He couldn't show up to David and go, look, I've been living for 20 years in obscurity, but I've been accumulating wealth. I am a very wealthy man, bring me into your inner circle, and I can help run your finances, and I can help oversee this, and I have something to bring to the table. He couldn't do that. He had nothing. Disappeared into the night with the clothes on his back. He had nothing to bring to the table, and yet he is a recipient before the King of of the covenant that his father and King David had made, just like us. In fact, we read this in Ephesians one five and six. It says that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kindness or sorry, according to the kind intentions of His will, to the praises. Of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestows on us in his beloved. See, God accepts us crippled, broken, shameful, living in obscurity. That's how he accepts us, not after we get our acts together. You see, grace places us at the table. Grace places us at the table. And David said to him, "'Do not fear, for I will show kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the lands of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always.'" You see, for them to eat at the king's table was to be family with the king. It was to be family with the king. You see, David could have stopped at any point. He could have kept his promise to Jonathan and and reached out to Mephibosheth and said, "'Look, Mephibosheth, you're living in obscurity. You're way out here in the middle of nowhere.'" come live in Jerusalem, come to the capital city, I'll buy you an apartment, I'll pay your rent, you can live in the city, come out of obscurity, and you'll have a better life than living in Lodabar. And everybody would have gone, oh, that's very nice of you, David. He could have reached out to Mephibosheth, and, and he brings them before him, and he says, look, I'm not only going to bring you out of obscurity, but I'm going to give you everything that was your grandfather's. I'm going to give you all his land. I'm going to give you his servants. And immediately when he does that, Mephibosheth has wealth. He has an inheritance when he had none. And all of a sudden, he has a good life. And everybody would have looked at David and said, how kind of you, David. You gave this boy everything that was his grandfather's. Wow. Wow. I think any one of us would have gone, I'd gladly accept that, right? <laughs> wealth, inheritance, in a moment, Mephibosheth goes to living in obscurity, forgotten to wealth and an inheritance. But David didn't stop there. He says, look, I'm giving you all of this. I'm giving you your, your grandfather's servants. You, have to, you don't have to worry about another thing for the rest of your life. But you are going to come and live with me in the palace, and you're going to eat at my table. In other words, I'm restoring your inheritance, and I'm making you part of the family. He did not have to do that. But what David was demonstrating was grace upon grace. The same thing that God demonstrates with us. Right, David could have started with just, well, Mephibosheth, I won't kill you. There you go. I honored my promise to Jonathan, I won't kill you. But he doesn't stop there. He goes as far as he can, as far as bringing Mephibosheth to make him part of his own family. Which God the Father could have said, you know what, Jesus, he died for your sins. Okay, you guys, I'm not going to kill you. You can be my servants now. But he didn't stop there. He said, no, you are heirs to the throne. If If you accept this grace, that makes you an heir to the throne. Equal glory That when we look at the Father and we see His glory, that we see our own reflection in that glory. This is grace upon grace, you guys. And this is what David demonstrates to Jonathan and it is an example of what is to come for us. That grace places us at the table. And finally, wrapping this whole series up, is that grace brings us from the outside in. Grace brings us from the outside in. You see, we're all outsiders because of our lineage. We're all outsiders. And grace comes and gets us where we're at. It finds us in our brokenness, in our shame, in our obscurity. We don't have to go looking for the king. It comes looking for us. And it brings us from the outside in. And I love this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Just listen to how good God is. But God, being rich in mercy... Being uh, because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches. Of his great of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. See, this is what God has done for us: that while we are still dead in our trespasses, while we are still enemies of God, while we are still sinners. Christ came for us why because of the goodness of God because of the love of the father and the king and when we say yes to that grace when we say yes to it we receive an inheritance and we receive adoption into the family so Mephibosheth had nothing to bring to the table he had nothing to bring to King David just like us we have nothing to bring to the fathers We have nothing to bring to God. We can't. We are all crippled in a sense. We're all shameful in a sense. We have been living in obscurity. And yet the Father goes and finds us. Scripture says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He's doing the seeking, not us. And this morning, that same grace upon grace is offered to you this morning. You see, I believe that there's two types of people in this room today. There are two types of people. The first type of person is the person who has not received that grace yet. They've, they've not said yes to Jesus. They, they're like Mephibosheth, still living in Debar, still taking on the name of shamefulness, trying to maybe earn something in this life, trying to leave a mark in some way, trying to be a good enough person, trying to be a good enough father, a good enough husband, or a good enough employee, or a good enough employee, just trying to earn it and work for it. And maybe, just maybe, my life might have some meaning some way, somehow. But knowing deep in our minds and in our souls that I have shame in my life. I have brokenness in my life. And this morning, there's this offer from this king saying, come to the king. He's come. He's found you. He's sought you out. And now he's offering grace upon grace this morning. And Maybe you've heard this before it's never made sense or you've just been like Mephibosheth hiding from the king not looking for the king but maybe this morning for the first time this is speaking to your heart speaking to your soul and you're going yeah I want that if that's what salvation is that's what grace is I I don't bring anything I don't do anything like I just receive it from God I'll take that this morning I believe that that person is in this room this morning But I also believe that there's a second type of person in this room this morning. And that person is the person who has received grace from God. You've been brought from Lodabar into the palace and you've eaten at the king's table. What I want us to understand this morning is it does not end there. You see, there's this this parable that Jesus tells us. It's in Matthew 22. And it talks about a wealthy man was throwing this huge wedding feast this huge party and he sends out all these invitations and no one accepts his invitation this is where we pick up Matthew 22 8 then he said to his servants being the, the wealthy man the wedding feast is ready but those invited were not worthy go therefore into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good so when the wedding hall was so then the wedding hall was filled with guests see some of us have received this grace and and we now were, we're servants to the king not not forced but by will of our love for him and yes we are also his children but he's going look Go out into the streets and gather as many people as you can. There is a party and it's ready. There is good news. The grace upon grace is this amazing news. And you guys have experienced it and you know it. Now go, grab everybody. I love that it says both bad and good. In other words, the servants didn't go up to people and go, you're a cripple. You have shame in your life. Now you're not invited to the party. I don't think you fit the right type of person we're looking for maybe later maybe if you fix yourself up no it's just both bad just grab anyone that was willing to come hey there's a party you want to come there's a party you want to come there's a party you want to come right this is what God is offering us this is, this is a party you guys he's offering us this amazing life and he's this for all and he's saying go and seek people David sent his servants out go find Mephibosheth bring him to me some of us need to be stirred in our hearts in that way to go into the streets and find those who need to hear this grace upon grace, who need to know that while they're in bar there's a king who's sending them grace right now this morning. So, so this morning, we're offering something. We're offering baptisms. And we didn't announce this. We didn't let you guys know it was coming ahead of time. We just kind of said, look, we want to do this this morning. Because we believe there's people in in here today that that need to be baptized. And so what baptism is, is just a symbol, right? It's letting people know publicly that you've been brought into the king's table. It's letting people know, I've received grace upon grace. It's interesting in scripture. Like, we're just called to do it. We're just called to do it. So whether in your heart right now, you said yes to Jesus 30 seconds ago, or you said yes to Jesus 30 years ago, If you've never been baptized, I want to challenge you guys. Just as soon as we start worship, you can go right through those doors over there. There'll be people waiting to talk to you. We have shirts for you. We got shorts for you, towels, anything you need. And you can be baptized this morning as just identifying with the family of God. All baptism is, it says, yes, I've died to my sin. I've died to my shame. I'm dying this obscure life that I've been living. And I'm alive again in Christ. alive again in Christ. and I'm alive again as a member of his family. I've received grace upon grace. So if, if you've never done that this morning, I would love to encourage you to take those steps to identify as an insider and not an outsider. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful to you. God, thank you for the covenant that you made that we had nothing to do with. God, thank you that we are only recipients. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to do enough good deeds. I don't have to get my act all together, figure it all out before I get to be brought before the king, before I get to eat at its table. But God, you sent grace out ahead and you brought us in. Thank you, Jesus, because I could not earn it. God, and we clearly do not deserve it because we are all shameful. God, I just pray for those people who are in here right now that you are moving in their hearts. God, I pray for a breakthrough in their heart. God, that they would experience your grace this morning. Experience what Mephibosheth experienced. One moment living in shame, obscurity, and fear, and the next moment before the king being restored, being given an inheritance. today and for those of us who already have God move in our hearts put people on our minds burden us God for those who have not yet heard this and let us go into the streets and gather all that we can